Amen. And kids, K through two, if you want to start making your way with... Are you taking them out? All right, Miss Cynthia and Caleb and Anna are taking you out. So make your way with Caleb and Anna. And, and then for the rest of you, if you have your Bibles and want to turn with me to Exodus chapters 1 and 2, we're going to be in chapter 1 and then through chapter 2, verse 10. And last week we did the big overview of Exodus, and so now we start the story proper. So we're going to dive in. And this story that we're going to look at is a, it's a, it's a remarkable story in so many different ways. It's a story that can delight us because it shows how, it's kind of the ultimate underdog story of how a group that's weak and powerless, how they defy an empire and overcome oppression. But when you really dive in, it's also a story that can horrify us. Because it speaks of just terrible suffering and, and portrays evil kind of at an unspeakable level. It's a story that can encourage us because we see the sure and providential care of God even when it appears like he's not there and absent. But it's also a story that puzzles because we wrestle with, like, uh, why are these things happening to God's people? These are the people of promise. These are the people that his hand is supposed to be on. And these are the people in whom he says he delights. And yet, they have to go through this, this darkness. But above all, this is a story we need to keep in context. It's a story of warfare, it's a story that's unfolding and unpacking the Genesis 3 promise where God speaks to the serpent and says there's going to be enmity, there's going to be war against your seed and the seed of the, of the woman. So they're going to be battling against each other. So as we read the story, you have to read it in the context, this is unfolding of that battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. As even we read through it, you want to cue in on some things like Pharaoh. Part of the imagery is he'd have a giant serpent on his crown, on his headdress, and you'll hear things that he wants to deal craftily with them. Same word as the serpent in the garden. It was more subtle, more crafty than any animal. And you want to listen to how often the, the language of these are the sons of, these are the daughters of, because this is battle between the children of the serpent and the children, uh, the sons of God. So... <clears throat> And also, as we go through it, you know, one thing that's challenging is these stories are paradigmatic, not encyclopedic. So what that means is there's, there, there are only a very few details that are given, but those details are very intentional and are meant to open up larger truths and larger picture, a larger picture. You know, in this story, there's so much that's left out that we wish we were told but they're, they're paradigmatic. So let's begin. Pick up the story in verse 1 through 7 of chapter 1. And remember, as you're reading, that these are, these are the, the sons of Israel, the people of God. They are there by divine command. They are living under divine promises. They are awaiting divine divine action. But in this time, their life doesn't feel that way. They're living in the midst of this present darkness. What, what, they're, what they're feeling from their perspective is that it seems like 
Heaven is silent and earth all around them is threatening. And they're going to undergo these traumatic experiences. But from their perspective, there's no obvious or easy explanation for these experiences. They're going to go through this hostility, but there's no apparent protection. And you know, if you think about it, this side of heaven, that's so often how life feels. It feels that way from this perspective. Like Steve mentioned, sometimes you pray and you feel like heaven is shut and it's not, hear, uh, it's not hearing. And we live in this present darkness. So chapters 1 through 2 are setting the scene, setting the stage. And the stage is that they're living under this shadow. Life in this present darkness. And your kids, all of you know, what do you do in the dark? Or how do you feel in the dark? Have any of you ever been scared of the dark? You think about it, you're scared of the dark, why? Because it's in the darkness, things get distorted. Like, is that a towel hanging on the door or is it a monster waiting to break in? You know, is that wind blowing in the bushes or is somebody just outside my window? Things are distorted in the dark. And so what do you need? Like when you're in the dark, every kid knows you don't need a whole lot of light, but even a two-watt light bulb can change everything. And throughout all these chapters, God's going to give us these different two-watt light bulbs to help us see. So this morning, I want to walk you through three things that you need to see when you're in the darkness. Well, let's pick up the story of one through seven. <clears throat> these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. So the people that were providing us prosperity and protection and stability and the, the, the patriarchs of the family... They gave us our place and our purpose. They're all gone. They've died. So now what do we do? But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and they multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is echoes of Genesis uh, chapter 2 to be fruitful and multiply. And finally, they are fulfilling their purpose and experiencing the promises of God to, to bless them. And then there's verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly, craftily. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and they'll fight against us. And they'll escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities of Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the fields. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. 
Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other was Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can come to them. So God dwelt, with the mid uh, so God dwelt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied, and they grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all the people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast onto the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. Now going into chapter 2, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was, yes, a fine child, same phrase from Genesis 1, when she saw that he was good, she hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took from, for him a basket made of bulrush. That's interesting, a basket. It's the same word as ark. In Genesis 6, she made an ark of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman to seek it. And she opened it and saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity, had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the slave girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him into Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son, and she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him up out of the water. So here's the story, and each one of these are uh, going to be three little rays of light that we're going to look at. And the first thing I want you to notice is first, notice the strategy of the snake. So in days of darkness, you need to see how the serpent is going to try and strike and so first, notice the strategy. And let's pick it up first. We'll look at Pharaoh, because so much of the tension of this first half of the book is between Pharaoh sets himself up as a, a competitor to God. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? But really, the real parallel is between Pharaoh and Moses as two different leaders who are leading their people. So first, this is the, the serpent's man, or Satan's man. A couple things to notice. Look at verse 8. Now there arose... A new king. So I think historically speaking, this is a transition, a dynastic transition. That word for arose is the same word for uprising. There was a rebellion, there was an uprising. One dynasty falls, another one is rising in its place. And this is the, the Pharaoh who's leading some type of insurrection and uprising and uh, a, a rise to power. So he arises, but then notice there's a series of kind of uh, descriptions. Notice it says, he did not know Joseph. 
So the first thing about this kind of new leader who's arising is one, he's, he's ignorant. I mean, what does it mean he doesn't know Joseph? Does he not know the history? Like, what do you mean? Do you not know him? Do you not know what happened? Do you not know who is the primary human agent that's responsible for the prosperity of your kingdom and your place in this palace? It was Joseph who rearranged the civic structure of Egypt that eventually led to all of Pharaoh's power. So are you ignorant of who's responsible of bringing you to this place of prosperity to begin with? What do you mean you don't know? So he's ignorant. He doesn't know who he should actually be thanking for the blessings that he was, was born into. So he's, he's ignorant. But then also there's a sense of being entitled. You know, he's unrestrained by the gratitude that previous pharaohs might have felt towards Joseph and his people. So isn't it interesting how often those two things go hand in hand? Ignorant, but then entitled. So he's ignorant, entitled, but then also feel the insecurity. There's insecurity in verse 10. You know, he creates this us versus them. If he's rising to establish his kingdom, one of the best ways to do it is you create scapegoats, you create enemies, you create an us versus them. It's a way to consolidate rule and bring about energy of fear for this threat, for my identity. He's going to use envy to arouse enmity. And this is one of the things I can only think makes sense about how he thinks that order to the midwives to kill all the baby boys would actually be accomplished. You know, it's interesting to think about, all right, kind of what's their story, the two midwives that are named. And one of the things you can see in the story is that they, they, they were barren. They didn't have their own families. So they had this role, responsibility, and maybe it was just stoking envy in them. Like, look how, I mean, these Hebrew women, they're just popping out babies everywhere and you're barren. That's not fair. That's what you're entitled to. So he's using envy to arouse the enmity. So he's ignorant, entitled, insecure, but then almost also conflicted. So notice how conflicted it is. He both fears the Hebrews, the sons of Israel, but also um, needs them. Like I feel them, that wonderful phrase, there's too many and they're too mighty. So they're, they're other, they're aliens, so he fears them, but also needs them. They can't leave, because if they leave, we'll lose our prosperity. So ignorant, entitled, insecure, conflicted. And it's worth asking, what would, like what would a wise ruler have done in that context? And see what he does, Satan's, Satan's man, but notice the, me the method. You know, Jesus summarizes the serpent's method as one that's always seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. And that's universal. He's been that way from the beginning. His playbook is always to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And that can be your basic framework, and you can use that as a lens to view almost all of history and say, in what ways is he utilizing things, people, places, situations to try and steal, kill, and destroy? So notice what's being stolen in verse 11. He creates economic exploitation, and then they're going to compel them 
into forced labor. See, in verse 11, it's to build the storehouses, store cities. Those are the same word, actually, as tabernacle. The tabernacle, the place to store, but it's these giant cities to store their accumulated agricultural wealth. And then notice he's going to, he's going to afflict them with heavy burdens. Now that word, I'm not making this up, that word for burdens is the same word for taxes. He's going to afflict them with heavy taxes. And then notice the strategy is then to kill. Is to kill the sons. Kill the boys first clandestinely so maybe nobody notices what's happening. So to do it in secret, and then when that fails, just do it out in the open. Slaughter the sons. You think about, all right, why, why is this primary strategy to kill the boys? Kill the sons. And then finally is to destroy. You do those two things, you destroy. You destroy a people's hope. You destroy their, their reason for living. One of the saddest verses that we'll come to in chapter 6 is where it talks that people couldn't even hear the word of the Lord because their spirit was so crushed. So he wants to destroy them, wants to destroy their military force, their economic capacity, their national pride, their identity, to destroy them as a people. And it's worth pausing. I was thinking this week. So this is only, these are very half-baked thoughts. So just like cookies, half-baked thoughts often aren't the best thoughts. But you know, we're entering into election season. Every single time you turn on the television, you're going to hear this whole litany of issues that need to be discussed. You know, things like abortion transgender rights and the use of bathrooms, gay marriage, taxes, economic inflation, employment, entitlement, spending. It would be interesting to take kind of Exodus chapter 1 and 2 and just overlay it with everything you see and hear in the next political election cycle. And ask, all right, who's doing what? Who's trying to foment an us versus them mentality? Who's trying to advocate policies that are seeking to kill the children, to kill the boys? Like, when do you want the boys to die? Do you want them to die in the womb? Do you want them to die at another stage? How are we trying to kill the boys? We had our guys night this past week. We were wrestling with a question from one of the articles we read is, uh, why do men hate going to church? And uh, one of the things that's kind of intriguing that's been rumbling around in my mind is I wondered kind of out loud, is if you could take church out of that, put in another blank, and fill it in with other things, and it's still just a, as true of a sentence. So like, why do men hate going to school? Why do men hate going to college? Why do men hate going to the dentist? Why do men hate going to work? Why do men hate going outside? And I wonder, are we living in a context? And one of the things we kind of wrestled with is maybe the deeper question is, we don't know what it means to be a man or a woman any longer. So of course that's a satanic strategy. You want to kill the boys, make them very confused about what it even means to be a boy to begin with. And so here's what he's doing in the beginning. And if you're going to navigate the darkness, you've got to begin to see what is the strategy to strike. He was thinking about... Uh, this is an interesting book started this week called uh, Generations. It goes through the different generations. And one of the things that's really intriguing to me 
or the different, uh, you know, you look at demographics. You see here, demographics is destiny. And uh, one of the things, you know, I'm Generation X, so we stand on the sidelines and we point fingers both ways. So we look at the baby boomers and talk about all the stuff you did wrong, and then we look at the millennials and say, what's wrong with all of you guys? No, none of you are getting it right. And we just, you know, listen to Nirvana and sit in our room. <laughs> but one thing that's really intriguing to me about the, the millennials, and so if you're 25 to 40, you as a demographic are having the least number of children of any 25 to 40 year old range per capita that's ever lived in the history of Earth. And the primary reason that millennials give for not being able to have children is because they can't afford them. But economically speaking, you are the richest generation from 25 to 40 ever to live in the history of the earth adjusted for inflation. So you think someone has convinced you that you are poor and can't afford kids when you're the richest generation that's ever lived. So how does that happen? Remember when Cynthia and I were first married and we were renting this uh, house and we were moving in and one of my friends was helping me move in and his mom came over to kind of see us and she'd had, a, she'd had a challenging life, you know, got pregnant with him when she was 16 and kind of just grinded life away and had done very well for herself. And she walked in the house we were renting and walked into the bathroom and there were two sinks and she just stopped. She goes, y'all have two vanities, two of them. It's like, yeah, kind of nice. She's, oh, I had to work 20 years before we got two sinks in our house. Oh, kids, you don't know what you got. You don't know how easy you have it. No, what, what marriage troubles are you going to have? You have different sinks. So he's right. We got it good. And so you think, all right, well, how's the strategy to convince you these things? He wants to kill the boys. How does he go about doing it? He wants to kill the children. But then notice the conspiracy of compassion. How it's responded in days of darkness, you need to see how the daughters are the ones who strike back. In the beginning, it's the sons who are in danger, and it's the daughters who come to their rescue, and they strike back. You have this series of five remarkable rebel women who rescue the sons. The first are the two midwives, starting in verse uh, 15, and the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, now it's deliberately ambiguous, are these Egyptian midwives who are placed over the birthing of the Hebrew women, or are they Hebrew midwives? The Hebrew could go either way. It could be Hebrew midwives or midwives of the Hebrews. And it's interesting to think, which were they? You know, if you think, all right, they're Egyptians, it kind of makes sense because you would think no Hebrew woman would obey the command to slaughter her own children. And then how would she, they have access to Pharaoh? So on the one hand, it makes sense. And then he's going to kind of fan the flames of their grievance and their envy. But then on the other hand, it says they knew the Lord and they feared him and they were going to obey him over the king. So either way, it's pretty Remarkable. Their names don't, we're not sure the names, the only place in ancient literature these names come from could be Egyptian, could be uh, Hebrew. Shipra is the name for beautiful. It's kind of interesting. I wonder if he's telling us this is what real beauty looks like in all of its courageous strength. Pua is a hard name. It's hard to translate. They think scholars' best guess is that it's an affectionate kind of pet name for little girl, but its root is from sparkle. 
So sometimes like a, a, a name a dad would give to the daughter who makes his, her, either her eyes or his eyes sparkle when they come in. And then so notice, they feared God and then he blessed them. Now probably the way it worked is they probably were the two who were in significant position of leadership over all of the uh, midwives. So you kind of almost, it's, it's not anywhere near a perfect analogy, but you can almost think of it like if in the area of Goshen, there's one primary place for giving birth, like there's one, you know, Arnold Palmer or Winnie Palmer, and then these are the two, in essence, nurses who are over this whole entire kind of ward, and they get the instructions from Pharaoh, and then they defy him. You know, uh, Leon Cass, who uh, was on in President Bush's cabinet and has taught political science at places like Harvard and Yale, says this is the first um, evidence of political civil disobedience in all of the, the history of the earth. And it's kind of interesting, one of the key things is names, and notice they're the ones who get named, but Pharaoh doesn't. From God's perspective, these are the, the heroes of the story. These two midwives, they're in a position of incredible power and influence, but notice they're going to use it not to exploit others, but for protection. So you think about maybe you find yourself in positions of, of power and influence, where maybe it's not children you can kill at the beginning, but maybe it's ideas you can squash at the very beginning. God wants you to steward that power and that influence well. So they're the two midwives. And then notice Moses' mother. It's interesting the way it's framed because it's framed in the context of whose daughter they are. So these are this is a daughter of Levi. She's in this family. All of the relations in this first part of chapter 2 are in their familial connection. This is this person's mother, their sister, their daughter. Because it's showing who you are is primarily determined not by you as an individual, what you do but it's the relational connections you have that determines who you are. A few months ago, I was uh, walking the neighborhood doing my exercises and uh, a car came pulled up right next to me and the window rolled down and then it looked like three little um, pigtail heads popped out the window and they go, hey, Annabelle's daddy. <laughs> I was like, hey, that's a good way to be known. That's how all of them, this is how they're known in this context. This is this person's daughter. This is their mother. This is their sister. And you notice Moses' mother, the beautiful phrase, she sees the baby. Now Moses is the third. It just kind of skips over. So Miriam first, then Aaron, then Moses. And when she sees the baby, says it was or he was good. Same as what God said when he created. The recreation and creation, it was good. And then forms this ark to put the child in. I love it because what she's doing is incredibly savvy because she obeys the letter of the law. Pharaoh says, if you have a boy, you cast him on the Nile. He didn't say anything about boats. It's like yesterday, our five-year-old comes walking out of the room and he's got his backpack full and he says, I'm ready to go to Noah's house. I say, hey man, you can't just, you can't just go. You have to be invited. And he says, nope, Noah's mom said I can come over whenever I would like, and I would like. <laughs> and see, so the last time he was there, we picked him up, and Cynthia said, thank you for letting him come over. And she said, oh, he was great. He can come over whenever he would like. Well, he heard that. <laughs> and he says, I would like to right now. <laughs> 
And this is exactly, I mean, Moses' mom, I mean, she's obeyed. He said, you didn't say anything about a boat. So she puts him in the boat and lets him go. But then can you think about the emote, like what that did to her inside of the three months of hi having the baby and trying to hide him and knowing, I mean, there's, there's nothing more helpless than a baby crying and you wanting it to stop, him or her to stop, and you can't get them to stop. And she's trying to hide him. And then what it required to create the ark and put him in the basket and take, this is the most precious thing in my life and right now I'm just going to let it go. And I'm going to trust you. So maybe there's something in your life that's so precious to you and you're just holding on to it. Maybe what God is asking, you just got to lay it, put it on the Nile and let it go. There is no way in the world she could have ever dreamt that the end of the story would that Pharaoh's daughter herself would get, would hire her to pay her to do the very thing, thing that she was terrified wouldn't happen. There's no way she would have thought that was going to happen. But she had to just let him go on the water. And then Moses' sister, I love how savvy Miriam is. I wish we knew how old she was at this time because she goes to watch and she sees what happened. And then it just drips with irony because she looks at Pharaoh's daughter and says, oh, wow, you found one of the Hebrew babies. I mean, I, I can go and find a nurse for you if you'd like. And then she orchestrates that. And then Pharaoh's daughter, this is a remarkable act of appropriate I don't know how old she was. I was going to say teenage rebellion. She was probably a little older. But defying her father. And so, so unlikely. Here's a Gentile. A Gentile queen. And you wonder, was she barren at this point? Did she not have her own children? And sees this child as a gift? And so she honors him and she names him Moses. And now for the rest of his life, he, his life is going to be marked by the name that was given to him to display the compassion of his adopted mother. So you have these tremendous cycle of both savvy and compassion. These great virtues of wisdom and compassion. This is something that's really interesting to me. And it's another half-baked thought, but it's intriguing how often... In the Bible, you know, the way the serpent originally got Eve is he deceived her. And it's, it's, it's striking how often throughout the biblical narrative, the way Eve strikes back is by deceiving the serpent. And she's going to deceive her father. And the, the irony is he gets brought into the very household that was trying to kill him. So the serpent's uh, strategy is undone by the compassion of the women, the daughters. Now, it's interesting as we continue in chapter 2 next week, we'll see that's not enough. You have to have compassion and wisdom, but you also have to have authority and strength. It's not enough to liberate the people. But you have to have at least this, and this is where the rebellion and the resistance, it begins. So that's the second thing you need to see, the compassion, the conspiracy of compassion in dark days. And the final thing is you need to see the hidden hand. In the dark days, you need to see how God is at work because the way God usually prepares a people, both collectively and individually for the salvation that he's going to bring, is he's often working behind the scenes in the midst of difficult circumstances. 
Now, one of the ironies of chapter 1 and 2 is God's hardly mentioned at all. Never directly, but always indirectly. And the, the natural response to these events is, I, where is God? Okay, we have a, a new king who's risen. Like, Joseph is dead. The patriarchs are dead. We could use some help here. And then now a new king has arise, arisen, and he has forgotten us. Don't you see? We're languishing. And then notice what he's doing. He's oppressing us. Where are you? And then notice, you, you see what's in secret. He in secret is trying to destroy our sons. Why are you letting this happen? And then now it's not even in secret. It's out in open. Hello, where are you? And in times like this, the most natural thing is to say, all right, where is God? How long, oh Lord, how long? And one of the interesting things, you walk through the, the, the timing of the different chapters in Exodus is just remarkable to me. Because in chapter 1, verse 1 through 7, so those seven verses are 400 years. I mean, 400 years of just kind of normal, everyday Wake up, go to bed, wake up, go to bed. 400 years. And then from the end of the, or to, uh, verse 8 all the way to the end of chapter 2, it's about at least 80. And then chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6, it's one day. <laughs> you get one day. And so, I mean, that's the span. I mean, sometimes there's whole, whole seasons where it seems like nothing is happening. But the eyes of faith, if you're going to see in the darkness, you have to develop eyes that can see and ears that can hear. And notice he's faithful doing those, that broad time. His silence is not his absence. Got to have eyes to see. And you can hear the echoes of Genesis 1 and in verse 7. All of these, this language from Genesis 1 of he blessed them. They grew strong. They exceedingly multiplied. In the midst of time, they were, he was still there. They were growing. And I wonder if there was even a sense in that of like, all right, finally, things are getting moving. You know, it seems so hard to get this family up and off the ground. God promised we'd be as numerous as the stars in the sky in the first several generations. I mean, we were struggling just to get one or two babies here. So it was going to take a while. And you see his faithfulness in behind the scenes during the small things. Don't despise the small things. You have to begin somewhere. A couple of weeks ago, my seven-year-old son looked at me and said, Dad, are we millionaires? <laughs> no, man. We're not millionaires. Like, oh. About a minute later, he says, Dad, are we hundredaires? I said, hundredaires? Yeah. We are hundredaires. He's like, yes. Hey, got to start somewhere. Got to start somewhere. And so start small, but that small beginning is not insignificant. His silence is not his absence. So he's at work during time, but he's also at work once the trouble starts, even when they can't see it. It's part of the great irony. Look in verse 12. The more the people oppressed them, the more they grew. So even in the midst of the trouble, he is working. And then one of the it's almost like the Moses, as he's writing this, has taken delight in how everything that Pharaoh tries turns out to accomplish the opposite. So this is what he does in the midst of tyranny. He brings about the very thing that's opposite. 
You know, Pharaoh inflicts these heavy burdens, but this is not Jesus' way. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. His decree to kill the boys is what ends up bringing the Redeemer to live in his own house. Everything he tries backfires, and God turns every single one of them to good for his people. And so as we close, going through this, you know, one of the phrases is, we'll, um, <clears throat> what I have here is how to be an anti-Egyptian because one of the key themes is there's going to be a contrast between these two peoples, these two kingdoms, these two ways of being in the world. So close with just a couple lessons you can pick up. And one, the first lesson is let the darkness, whatever it is, turn you towards God, not away from him. You know, in Genesis, what caused them to cry out to the Lord was infertility. It was personal domestic struggles, and that's what caused them to cry out to the Lord. In Exodus, that's not their problem. They have a different problem. But it's not necessarily the specifics of the problem. The point is whatever the problem is, it causes you to cry out to the Lord. You know, however many people in this room, we all, you know, I'm, I'm always kind of moved because I think in every room, if you have 20 people, there's 18 people with broken hearts at the moment. And all hearts in some ways are broken, but broken by different things. And so don't think because someone else doesn't have your problem, they don't have any problems. And so whatever it is, it causes them to cry out. You know, another lesson is that there's going to be a contrast running through the whole book is uh, remember that there, there's Egypt and then there's Israel and they're to be two different types. They're building two different types of communities. You know, Egypt is a place of uh, xenophobia, but Israel is to be a place that's welcoming to the outsider. You know, one of the things as you read through the whole book, notice how often the Lord will say when he delivers the law is remember you were slaves in Egypt. Don't forget what it was like. And in Egypt, it's a place of ceaseless work where work never stops. And it's not that way. That's why when he gives the Ten Commandments, it's, he's explicit. One day a week, everybody gets the day off. Do not exploit, not even your animals, they get a break. You remember what it's like when you were exploited that way. And then in Egypt, it's a place of massive building projects, but it's a building project to, for Pharaoh's profit. Here, it's a building project for a place where people can encounter and experience the living God. Here is a place of hoarding all of the agricultural wealth. Here is a place of open-handed generosity. Here is a place of deep control, trying to control everything about a person's life, even their fertility. Here is a place where it celebrates life. Here is a place of despotic rule and law, but here is a place where law brings life and flourishing. So anti-Egypt. Another lesson is, in the beginning, they're going through some really traumatic experiences and on the surface, there's no obvious explanation. You know, one thing that's just kind of a head scratcher for me is you think, all right, God is going to tell them this is the way that I have to form my people. And you just wonder, like, why? And in the moment, they, they would have no answer to that. You know, we get a 2,000-year hindsight and things can kind of be clearer. But even then, I think maybe they had to have that firsthand experience of the evils of, of oppression so they could remember, remember you were slaves. Maybe it helps to unite them around a common enemy with a common story. But one of the sad things through the whole book is that it created a slavish people. It was one thing to get them out of Egypt, but it was really hard to get Egypt out of them. You see, why? 
They don't defend themselves. They run away from difficulty and uncertainty, so it creates a difficult. There's not easy explanations, and there often just aren't easy explanations. But then the final lesson is to remember that salvation comes through the ark. You know, this beautiful picture of Moses being placed in the ark and Noah in the ark and in the midst of darkness, in the midst of the flood, in the midst of the judgment, there is a refuge created for God's people where they can hide away. And one of the reasons every week we celebrate communion because communion is one of the pictures that is a picture is it's a picture of our ark. It's a picture of the place that we can hide to find shelter and safety. We come and we experience the broken bread, which represents his broken body. And just like the cleft in the rock, that broken body is where we can shelter. You know, St. Augustine, one of his favorite images for the church is that this is God's ark where you come in and you encounter Christ and you can experience the shelter and the safety. So in just a minute, as our communion servers come and they come in place here at Trinity, uh, we come, we have uh, three stations, a gluten-free will be in the back, and then you come and you take the wafer and you dip, and it's uh, to remind you, let it remind you that this is the place, it's his broken body and it's his shed blood that I can find my refuge and I can lodge here. So uh, servers, once you're in place, you come.